You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today we are joined by Dr. Broca Stern. Dr. Stern is a certified hand therapist and adjunct faculty at NYU. She received her master's degree in occupational therapy from Temple University, a PhD from NYU, and is currently completing a postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University. Her clinical and research interests center on a systems perspective of musculoskeletal health with an emphasis on the upper extremity. Dr. Stern has publications on multiple sclerosis, pain, self-management, neurology, and quality of life, to name a few. Thank you so much for being here today, Broca. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, of course. We are excited to have a scholar with such a broad range of interests and expertise on the show today. You also serve as the Rehabilitation and Disability Special Interest Section Research Coordinator with the American Occupational Therapy Association. So we want to talk about that role and more specifically about how you run a successful virtual journal club with the RDSIS. Sure. We also want to discuss the Journal Club Guide, official name still pending, which is part of the newly developed Knowledge Translation Toolkit. And right away, Broca, I think I have a name recommendation for this guide. Sure, and I think Journal Club Guide is probably a good name because it really gets out what it, our intention is that it's a document that you can sort of take off the shelf and use and it's all inclusive and can help guide you from start to finish, but it's just a guide in the sense that it can be adapted to multiple settings or contacts. So sometimes simple is best. So journal club guide might actually be the best fit. I was going to suggest journal club jumpstart. I'm a big alliteration guy. I like that. I like jumpstart. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. Broca, what motivated you to start a journal club for the rehabilitation and disability special interest section? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, one of the reasons I actually initially applied for the research coordinator position at AOTA was because of my interest in knowledge translation or really trying to help bring that evidence into practice. And we often talk about a 17-year gap between research and practice change. And that is obviously far too long, especially with the increasingly rapid pace of medical and technological innovation. But at the same time, as practitioners, we're really busier than ever. We have so many demands in our time. And we need to like find these ways to increase our knowledge of current evidence and stay up to date on that to improve our practice, but really without too much of an increased burden. And journal clubs are one way, you know, there's many other ways, but journal clubs can be one way of really, you know, becoming a part of that culture of continued learning and evidence-based quality improvement. So when I started my role as research coordinator for the RDSAS in, it was summer of 2019, and I began, I believe it was in January of 2020, so a few months in, I began posting just article summaries on community as a way of trying to, again, just give a practitioner a sort of snapshot of something that they can maybe think about and in terms of how it relates to their practice. But it really wasn't engaging enough. And I wanted to try to find a way that was more engaging and more community oriented for those who wanted it to talk about this research and again, about how it can be actually translated into practice. 
and I've been tossing around the idea of a journal club for a couple months. I'd been involved in some earlier on, not as a organizer, but as a participant and a member. And I personally found them really rewarding. And I really give credit then to Emily Skoletsky, who's the Developmental Disabilities SAS Communications Coordinator, who actually started a journal club at the same time as me. And just having her going through a lot of the same processes and just talking through some of the logistics with someone else is really valuable in helping me to jumpstart that. Like we talked about journal club jumpstart. Um, getting that off the ground, because I think just getting something started is probably one of the hardest parts. And you touched on this a little bit in talking about how important it is for practitioners to improve their practice and, and stay as up to date as possible. Um, why would you say it's important for occupational therapy practitioners to take part in a journal club? Well, again, I think it's it goes back to that fundamental thing about trying to stay up to date with that current evidence to inform their practice. And it really, it doesn't have to be a journal club. There's no one best way and everyone has different learning preferences. And if someone likes to just independently read articles and think about them, that's great. But for a lot of us, like we're not gonna make the designated time to sit down and read, right? And if someone prefers listening to something again, like a podcast summarizing evidence, that's wonderful too. It's more just trying to figure out a way to stay up to date somehow. And what a journal club is nice is that most formats, there's some sort of schedule. So there's like a deadline that there's a scheduled meeting that you ideally would want to read the article beforehand. So you're sort of forced to take the time out of your day to read that. And even if you don't read it or the expectation of the journal club is not that you read it in advance, you have a scheduled time that you're actually meeting with a group to talk about that. So I think that schedule is helpful, again, just because of all of those competing demands in terms of just making sure this is something that's prioritized. And I also think another really nice thing about a journal club is that it is a community, whether it's the same community that attends every single session or whether it's a community that changes from session to session, nonetheless, it's still a group of people coming together to talk about something. And that dialogue and, you know, that just that sense of, community building, but also just those conversations are really, really important because I think we all bring different pieces to the puzzle. We all bring different levels of expertise, whether it's in things like more of the research design and the research methods versus someone who may have more knowledge of the clinical piece. So putting all of those pieces together really can help to have some really productive dialogue that can then hopefully change practice. Uh, absolutely. That I love that piece of the increased accountability that you feel in a journal club to stick to the schedule and also accountability to your peers um, to help them improve their practice too. seems like it can be very valuable. Um, can you tell me more about the format of the R&D SIS Journal Club? Sure. So right now, I would say that this is still really new. We started the first one in the late summer. So just a couple months ago, the late summer of 2020. So we're, re we're really looking for, for feedback for those who have attended or plan to attend to figure out ways to refine it and what works best for everyone who's interested in participating. Right now, we're holding these one evening a month for an hour via Zoom. And we scheduled evening times, even though for some people that's challenging with things like childcare and other responsibilities, but it's a way to try to get the most people across the U.S. in terms of time zones, you know, able to engage at the same time. Uh, we chose Zoom as a way to really facilitate those conversations, whether it's the ability to actually share things 
whether it's an article or the presentation slide so people can actually look at something together, but then also the ability to see each other and actually, again, have that sense of community while we're talking. Right now, the meetings are open for AOTA and non-AOT members and everyone who's a part of the OT community is welcome, whether it's occupational therapists, occupational therapy assistants, occupational therapy students. We're trying to make this as inclusive as possible because again, it's all about that diverse dialogue, talking about a common topic, but again, all with our different perspectives. We are asking that attendees read the article in advance just to try to make it more of an engaging conversation. The more you come prepared, the more you're able to actually sort of take that conversation to the next level. But we'd rather you come, even if you haven't read it, versus not participate. And the nice thing too is that you actually can get a contact hour for participation if you are an AOT member. So you can actually like sort of kill two burns with one stone. You can, you know, get your continuing education done at the same time while you're really talking about evidence. So it's exciting. Uh, that is exciting. And if some of our listeners want to sit in on that journal club or become a part of it, um, how could they gain access? That is a great, great question. So for AOT members, the best place is really to take a look at community. We post the invites and the registration links on community. If you're someone who's really interested in becoming more of a regular attendee, you can also email me directly or contact me directly. And my contact information is on the AOT website as the RDSAS research coordinator. And then I can just automatically send you the registration links as they open. So you don't have to like, don't formally sign up each month. And for non-AOT members, really the best way right now is just social media. So we try to post invites on things like LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. But again, if you're someone who's interested in being more of a steady participant, you can also contact me and then I can more automatically register you as time goes along. Awesome. That sounds great. Thank you. I know the AOTA is currently working on a knowledge translation toolkit, uh, which basically is going to be a set of online resources or tools to help people apply evidence to their practice. And one part of that is a guide to planning and running journal clubs, um, which you are involved with. Can you share the motivation for the update to this knowledge translation toolkit? Sure. So to clarify, the knowledge translation toolkit is actually brand new. That's something that we realized, and I'm not directly part of the Knowledge Translation Toolkit, I'm involved just with the journal club section, but we realized as a larger group that AOT has a lot of resources for evidence-based practice, research, but really the most challenging piece is that knowledge translation, right? You can read about research, you can think about research, but how do you really get it into practice and really create practice changes? So uh, a group is developing this Knowledge Translation Toolkit as a way to really give practitioners, these resources and practical resources and practical suggestions about how to try to, again, really thinking about not just reading research, but applying that research or evidence to inform their practice. Really, the, the journal club guide or journal club jumpstart or journal club toolkit, whatever term we want to use. Um, I actually do like journal club jumpstart. But the journal club jumpstart, uh, that's we were actually thinking about updating sort of in parallel, but then as we were updating it, we realized that it probably would work best as a component of the Knowledge Translation Toolkit because they both share this really overarching mission and the journal club is just one method 
of knowledge translation. Um, with that said, we are not starting from scratch. We're updating the journal club part itself. And there is a currently an excellent document called the Journal Club Toolkit that exists on the evidence-based practice and research webpage on the AOT website. And this document was developed by Bill James and Elizabeth Metzger. And again, it's a really excellent document that takes you from start to finish in terms of planning a journal club, running the journal club, et cetera. But a group of us then of research coordinators and AOT staff are working on refreshing their document because things change and we wanna make it more current. Um, and also we wanna make sure that it does position itself well and it does fit well or mesh well within that broader knowledge translation framework, which is this new initiative. And what are some key differences between the current version and this updated one that you all are working on? Again, the original one was really, really excellent. And I want to emphasize that we're not changing things because the, the one that's currently available is negative or bad or anything like that. But it's more, the original one was centered on developing a journal club within an institution. Uh, but reading it through with fresher eyes, we really wanted to make one that was much more flexible and inclusive, and that's more adaptable to various settings and different types of communities. I mean, we no longer communicate in the same way as a society and as practitioners, and COVID-19 has definitely further transformed the way we communicate and share knowledge and just interact with each other. So we wanted to try to, again, have this more inclusive vision, whether that some of the same ideas could be adapted, whether you're doing a Twitter journal chat, whether you're doing a, a formal journal club with an institution, whether it's a group of peers who are meeting online across settings. That was like really, I think, the fundamental reason we decided to do the update. And then beyond that, there's some more just technical things we're trying to create more of an emphasis on other types of research designs, not just traditional like quantitative intervention type studies, trying to focus a little bit more also on qualitative research um, and possibly some even more health services type research, just as a way to get people thinking of different types of studies and different types of designs that they can read to think about, again, informing their practice. This sounds like it's going to be a a continuously evolving document um, that adapts to, to changes in the environment and really can be a resource for OT practitioners across the spectrum and, and well into the future as well. Um, so I, I really like that you guys are, are continuing to make changes and update it as it goes. What are some of the key areas that you cover in the Journal Club Guide? Yeah, and I'll just before I answer that, I'll just go back to what you just mentioned uh, a second ago, and that's Part of the idea also is that if we can make this more of an online document, again, embedded within the journal club, sorry, with embedded within the knowledge translation toolkit, the idea is also that we can perhaps be more flexible in updating specific sections because not everything changes, but certain sections may need to change with the times or evolve more rapidly. So the idea is also just to give you a little more flexible that way in terms of not having to update an entire thing in the future, but thinking about just refreshing certain sections as, as things change. But then going back to, you just asked about the key areas in the guide. So we're really trying to, again, make this as all-inclusive as possible. So we're starting to think about from the beginning, like how would you actually start it or, or plan it, whether it's trying to bring leadership on board, whether it's just figuring out the logistics, such as a meeting platform or finding physical space. 
And again, it's just a broader guide. We don't give necessarily very, very, very specific details in every section, but it's really trying to help guide the practitioner or the student through the things they need to think about, and then they can make decisions based on what works best for their setting or context. And then, so besides the logistics, we really are thinking about providing guidance on how to find and select articles and then how to critically appraise those articles. And then we also have all of these just various appendices to try to make this as simple and straightforward as possible. Because again, we all appreciate the tremendous burdens that practitioners have on their time and trying to make this something that's relatively easy to implement so that people can do it and it's not such a huge drain. It, it sounds like the guide is designed to provide a jumping off point for practitioners in, in starting a journal club. Would you recommend that a practitioner follow the steps in the guide to a T, or is it more something that can be adapted to fit across practice settings and environmental demands as needed? So I think it can go either way. We're really envisioning this as something that someone could take and follow from pretty much start to finish if they have never like done this process at all. It could also be a document that's picked up or, or uh, resources picked up and that you know someone might just zoom into one section like, oh, I just am interested in selecting articles because there already is a journal club mechanism in place, but now I need to figure out what are maybe some better techniques to find articles or or I wanna try to transform the way we critically appraise the things we talk about. So it also could just be like a very section specific. And then beyond that, absolutely any of those sections can be adapted. And depending on the, the meeting platform or depending on whether you know your expertise level in terms of research or, clin or clinical knowledge, depending on so many factors, there's so many things that would need to be changed. And we would love to hear people's modifications and people's solutions and, and things that, you know, perhaps might be missing in relation to specific contacts. And we can crowdsource all of those, you know, whether it's dialogue on community or dialogue in, in other ways, we can create, again, this is just that jumpstart, a jumping off point, and it's a guide, but there's definitely need for adaptation and definite flexibility but we don't all have to reinvent the wheel each time too. So if people are coming up with good adaptations and good flexibility strategies, it would be great to, again, find a way to sort of put those all together so people can use the guide even perhaps in addition or, or, or supplemented with a modification that someone else has already made. Absolutely. And I love, again, how you touched on kind of the importance of, of community and people sharing the adaptations they make using this guide. I think that can be a, a great resource for people to really turn to others outside of their own journal club uh, to find ways they can adapt it and, and implement it into, into their own lives and practice. I would like to follow up as well on some of the specific aspects of the guide that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned selecting articles. Where can practitioners access peer-reviewed articles without having access to a university library? That is definitely a real challenge. And that is something that I think is one of perhaps the perceived hurdles or, or biggest hurdles that people face. It's like you you graduate from school and then if you're not part of like an institution that's part of like a medical school or you're not affiliated somehow as adjunct faculty or, or something with you know a university, it's like where can you actually access? So 
I mean, there really are, though, a lot of opportunities out there. If you are an AOT member, AOT offers access to a few journals, even beyond the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. So, you know, definitely we can use those resources. You can use your ProQuest access through MBCOT if you have that. That is a good resource or a great resource and, you know, justification to keep your R or your C because you're actually getting benefit from it. Your institution may have some journal subscriptions, even if you're not part of a hospital. They may, be, they may subscribe or be able to subscribe to one or two target journals if a group of you really gets together and you know, requests that and shows justification for why you think that would be helpful for, for clinical care. Beyond that, taking fieldwork students can be a good strategy because some institutions will give their fieldwork educators access to their, you know, their database as a way of saying thank you. So that can be, you know, a nice perk of taking those students. Also beyond that though, there are ways to access articles through, whether it's PubMed Central, that's an online digital repository that's free. And there's a lot of text, full text that have been uploaded there because of grant funding requirements. So even if the article is not officially open access and it's officially behind a paywall behind a journal, but there is a free text, there is a free version of that article on PubMed Central that you can access. So that's a great way to find things too. Thinking beyond that, some journals publish open access articles, even if the journal itself is not open access. But then there are also these journals that are open access today, and there's more and more of these open access journals emerging. So for example, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, which often publishes literature of interest to OT practitioners, now has a sister open access journal called the Archives of Rehabilitation Research and Clinical Translation. So accessing is definitely a challenge. I definitely acknowledge that, but at the same time, as this world of open science continues to evolve, I think that will be a, a burden that actually decreases. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one minute survey. It's only three questions and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. That, that's great to hear. And I'm taking notes over here because I'm about to finish my education at, at Wash U. And that is a concern I have losing access to, to a university library. But I'm very encouraged to hear that there are many other resources to turn to. There absolutely are. How can a practitioner ensure that they are selecting appropriate articles for their club? Yeah, so that that's like a separate problem, right? Because like you can find like it's the question is, can you find full text? Can you actually access them? But then it's like, how do you know what is the right article to choose? And that's sort of going on simultaneously because you're trying to find the article and also figure out whether it's a good article or not. And I mean, this is a really complex topic. And I am working on an evidence parks article for OT practice, which talks a little bit more about selecting articles. But even that is still a really, really rough sketch. I would say that it is important to acknowledge that not all evidence is equal and that 
there are some journals that are more what we term predatory that may not have the same rigorous peer-reviewed processes in place. So you can't necessarily rely on the quality of their research as well. And there are some lists online in terms of trying to figure out whether journals like that or not, but it can be hard to judge. Even if you are picking like a, a quality journal or journal that you know that people respect and actually access literature from, different articles have different levels of rigor based on their design. And in addition to all of those methodological considerations, different articles have different degrees of clinical relevance or interest to journal club participants, right? You could have extremely rigorous study, but if it's not directly relevant to OT practice or the setting that you're in or the population you work with, it's, it's not a good article for your journal club either because the purpose of a journal club generally is not as an academic exercise to figure out, is this a good article or not? The purpose of the journal club is to talk about this research and its strengths and weaknesses in relation to your clinical practice or your, or your practice if you're in a school-based setting. So any type of practice. It's really, I would say, a bit of a learning, it's a learning curve, and it's, it's sometimes you learn from your mistakes, you pick an article that you realize was probably not the best fit, and I actually did that for one of the RDSAS journal clubs. I picked the article, I didn't fully, fully look at the article beforehand um, in terms of some of the complexities of the measures, and then I realized that it was a little, perhaps, it was a good article, but perhaps a little too complex to talk about um, in terms of a journal club, we don't want to get bogged down in too much of those very procedural details. And that was a, a thing that I learned from for myself um, going forward. But I would say, again, it is a learning curve, but you really don't have to wait to be an expert to get involved because expertise is also a learning curve and we're all, it's a continuous cycle. If you're really unsure about how to navigate, just going to journals that you know are good. So something like the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, the Canadian Journal of Occupational Therapy, Archives of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many. This way you just know you can trust the peer review processes. And then within that, it's more just picking an article that speaks to you or resonates with you in your practice. And that should be a good starting point. And then you can refine it from there. I hope that helps. No, absolutely. Those are some great clear steps that uh, listeners can can take. Are there any Anything else that practitioners can do to develop these type of critical appraisal skills that you mentioned? Absolutely. And critical appraisal is an interesting concept because it's something that can either happen after you select an article in the sense that you someone selects an article and then the group critically appraises the article. But at the same time, if you're the person selecting the article, right, you have to be critically appraising the article to a certain extent in order to determine whether it's appropriate to be selected or not. So it's a bit of like a recursive process in that sense. And as far as the, the critical appraisal, I think it's important also to, re to remember that it's not just about the negatives. It's not about the weaknesses of the study. It's about what are the strengths and weaknesses of the study. And also, again, it's what are the strengths and weaknesses really specific to your population or your setting or your practice question or your clinical problem or, or whatever that is. I would say just a few quick strategies is, number one, it's really important not to just look at the abstract and the discussion. Those sometimes can be maybe easier to read because they don't have the statistics, they don't have some of the more complex ideas within them that sometimes people who are not as involved with research may not 
as interested in looking at. But the problem with just looking at something like the abstract or the discussion is that the abstract specifically is just this, a snapshot in the sense that it doesn't really give a full picture of the study because of word limits. And also people do tend to probably phrase it a little bit more positively or we call spin it perhaps in the abstract, even subconsciously. There's a bit of a cognitive bias that goes in in terms of you're trying to summarize your studies, you're gonna summarize it in a more positive way perhaps than, than really the, the results support. And the same idea is also in the discussion because the discussion is a lot more about the author's interpretation of their findings. And most of us, after you've spent, you know, blood, sweat, and tears and years doing a research project, you want to show that it's important and meaningful. And you often are looking at it through a very specific lens, which may be perhaps a little bit more positive. Um, and you may be glossing over some of the weaknesses of the study. And again, even subconsciously, it's not that necessarily someone's trying to to present something as inaccurate. So it's really important to get start getting into the habit of really taking a look at the article, really thinking about the, the research aim or the research purpose, looking at the methods, looking at the results, seeing how those all match up or mesh, and thinking about what your own interpretations of those things are before you go ahead and then, then look at the authors. And I know that sounds a little intimidating, but I would say one of the best ways to develop those skills is actually participating in a journal club. And the reason for that is, is that you're doing this with a group. You're doing this with a community. So not everyone has to know everything. And it's the perfect place to learn and practice and apply those skills and refine those skills. I mean, there are resources out there. There are different types of podcasts and um, there are different types of just you know, articles or, or textbooks or, or other resources that just talk about critical appraisal and what the steps are. But it's it's really about the application and the practicing. And again, the, probably the best place to do that is within a group and a community that are all engaged in that same process about the same article or articles. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your your perspective on this. I, I really love that uh, way of, of viewing it. Um, a journal club really is so much more than just picking an article and having a discussion about it, um, but really establishing a meaningful journal club, I think can be a, an intimidating process, uh, like, like you said, um, especially for practitioners without an extensive research background. How deep of an understanding of topics like research approach, research synthesis, scientific rigor, um, and levels of evidence uh, does someone really need to have for a journal club to be successful? No one actually has to be an expert in order to start a journal club. I think anyone who's passionate about research and who's passionate about trying to change their practice can definitely be a leader or involved with a journal club formation. And then perhaps you would need to partner with someone, whether it's a colleague who maybe completed their, their doctorate or, or an OTD or, or even just went to school more recently right? So they just have, they just have those skills that they learned in graduate school, pressure in their mind. And you can create a team where one person may be involved more with selecting the articles and leading discussions about the article, where someone else might be, be able to try to think a little bit more about the clinical implications. So it's definitely a partnership and a team effort. And one thing to think about too, is that I know Emily Skoletsky, again, from Developmental Disabilities, 
SIS has been doing these intro to journal club series where the focus of her sessions have been really to develop some of those critical appraisal skills more explicitly. And that can be a great suggestion, especially if it's a new group that's starting. Perhaps you could invite someone in who does have some more of those skills and they can take you through the process and, and try to just give you a refresher on some of those skills so that you feel more confident forging forward in terms of, again, finding articles and appraising those. I would say, though, that the emphasis is really clinical translation, right? Or that knowledge translation, it's the clinical application. So you do not really have to be a true, true expert in every aspect of the research design. You're not replicating the study. You're not designing a study, right? You're a consumer of their research. So there's, there's a different level of skill set needed to read an article than there is to do a study. As far as participating in a journal club, you know, not necessarily leading or organized, as far as participating in a journal club, anyone can participate in our journal club. It may be harder or more challenging in the beginning, trying to slog through that article, trying to engage meaningfully in the conversation. But again, each session you attend and each thing that each time you listen to that conversation, even if there's not a formal type of training session, you will definitely be improving those skills so that participating will be easier in the future. I feel very encouraged hearing, uh, hearing you answer that question. Um, and I, I know our listeners will as well. Broca, what would you say are some common pitfalls practitioners face when attempting to start and maintain a journal club? And how would you recommend that practitioners avoid these pitfalls? Well, I would acknowledge that it can be really overwhelming. And I know for myself, even just trying to start the RDSIS one or thinking about getting that off the ground was definitely a challenge. And for me, that peer support was definitely helpful in terms of just having someone else I can talk to about some of the logistics. So I think even if you're not necessarily creating a journal club together, if you can actually find someone who's interested in doing that in their own institution or their own community, trying to just go through those processes together can be really helpful. In terms of the logistics, as OTs and OT practitioners, we are all really, really flexible and adaptable or need to be in our clinical practice. So the logistics will fall into place. Like those are not such a concern. You just have to figure it out. But we, we can all make different situations really work. One of the biggest challenges perhaps might be maintenance and how to keep it going. And I think if you can really get a core set of people who are really interested in this, again, not as an academic exercise, but as something that they're really interested in that culture of continuous learning, continuous quality improvement and evidence-informed practice, if you have that core group, you should be able to keep it going. One thing that's important to acknowledge too is that journal clubs, sometimes in terms of just maintenance, it's that it can be thought of as a journal club as sort of boring, but research and journal clubs don't have to be boring or irrelevant. It's really thinking about how can we talk about topics and articles that speak to us and that can help us transform our practice. Uh, that can be easier a bit when you have a group that really has a shared passion or a shared interest or shared challenges or, or things that are trying to change. So I would say that one thing is also helpful is that you don't have to have a really specific like shared thing like, you know, hand therapy, for example, or driving rehab or, or whatever it might be that you're interested in. It doesn't have to be that specific, but having a group that really has that shared interest and shared passion should help with that maintenance. I love that. 
And you, you touched on this, it's the original motivation for starting the Rehab and Disability SIS Journal Club. The hope is that being involved in the Journal Club will lead practitioners to make changes and improvements to practice, uh, which is what I believe is the goal of the entire process. What specifically can practitioners do to translate evidence into their practice? Yes, and that is probably the hardest part. But then the bigger challenge is, we have a journal club, we have a session, we have a conversation. How does that really make a meaningful difference? And this is something that is truly, truly a challenge. And there are really no perfect answers. And I would say that even if a journal club session is a bit more of an academic exercise, it's not necessarily totally wasted because you're still building your research literacy skills, which can hopefully help you with knowledge translation in the future. But nonetheless, participating in a journal club without trying to actively translate that into practice really doesn't live up to the full potential of what a journal club can be or should be. So some strategies are things like really, again, selecting articles that are directly relevant to your practice. Even when you're discussing the article, trying to frame that discussion around a clinical problem or around um, you know, a practice trend or around something and really talking about the article in the context of something that is happening within your practice. After the journal club, it's really about perhaps if there's ways you can check in with each other to hold yourself accountable to think about, you know, how you can implement a new skill or do additional reading or additional thinking about a certain topic. I think part of the journal club too is about really fostering that community of people who are interested in evidence-informed practice. And then just being part of that community probably makes you a little bit more of an intentional and reflective practitioner who will think a little bit more about the decisions you're making in the clinic in terms of assessments and interventions, et cetera, and, and how those really match up with evidence, either that was directly discussed in the journal club or just more broadly other types of evidence-based trends. As far as like formal processes for knowledge translation, I think it's most helpful for that if you are within a more an institution, because it's easier to create things like peer audits or, or, or chart review audits, or even like a small quality improvement project, or, or things like that where you can really try to see how practice is changing and it's easier to hold yourself a little bit more accountable. But even without these formal processes, I think it's really all about, again, becoming a little bit more of an intentional and reflective practitioner and trying to frame the journal club discussion in a clinical sense or in a practice-related sense to help translate or, or bring that evidence the next day when you're in the clinic. Because you won't be thinking about just as, oh, this article I read, but thinking about it in the context of the client you treated, the setting you work in, et cetera. Absolutely. Thank you again for sharing all your expertise and providing these recommendations um, to, to me and to our listeners. I want to ask, Broca, if you could share a clinical example or a personal story of how starting or participating in a journal club led to a positive outcome. Absolutely. So I was really fortunate that I was able to participate in an established journal club for several years as a new practitioner in the institution I was working in at the time, which was Select Medical. And this was a national group that met online and it was focused on a specific topic. So in this case, I was part of a journal club about hand therapy topics. 
And we have to take turns as members actually selecting, preparing, and presenting those articles. That whole process just gave me more confidence in general about, you know, thinking about research and just making sure that I was staying up to date. The discussions definitely helped my research literacy and they did change my practice. Like just one quick example was an article talking about uh, different types of orthoses for some carpal, metacarpal arthritis. Thinking about the discussion that we had about that article definitely made me rethink some of my clinical decisions in terms of my recommendations for those orthoses. As far as when we talk about the positive outcomes, like I think it's really challenging to say that sometimes because we struggle with really systematically measuring practice changes and, and how those really improved, you know, a, a clinical outcome for a specific client. But definitely more broadly, participating in that journal club made me much more intentional in my practice over the first few years. It definitely helped me become a practitioner who remained immersed in the literature even after I graduated from my MOT program. Awesome. Thank you for sharing how journal clubs have, have helped you as a, a practitioner to, to grow and expand your knowledge. What additional resources would you recommend to our listeners? So first of all, there's a wealth of resources which are really available through the AOT evidence-based practice page. And specifically, there's an evidence-based practice resources directory, which has links to different resources about actually selecting articles or placing articles, um, clinical practice guidelines, and all those types of evidence-based practice. So I highly recommend that people just take a look at that and see what intrigues them. And it's also divided into different like practice settings, like children and youth rehab and disabilities, you can sort of just pull out what's more relevant to you. Nowadays, also, there are some journals that have columns which really focus on things like knowledge translation or evidence implications. And if you have a journal that you are interested in or that you follow just because of your specific practice interests, take a look at that journal and see if they have a column more like that, which talks a little bit more about research and, and evidence-informed practice. More and more journals also, as well as some individual clinicians are having podcasts that focus on things like research applications. And those can be great ways of you know, gaining knowledge if that's a learning mechanism that you appreciate. A lot of journals are also doing things like visual abstracts or infographics, which are these quick snapshots of articles, which are another good way of just absorbing information. I would say for things like a visual abstract or infographic though, I think those are really valuable for those who are visual learners, but I think it's really important to still go back to the article. So to me, a visual abstract is a way to sort of screen. It's like, oh, that looks interesting. Let me now look at the full article versus like, let me just take my final implication from this very brief snapshot. There are also some more subscription-based resources such as Up to Date which helps synthesize evidence-based recommendations, which again, can be helpful for, for knowledge translation. And then again, join a journal club, right? It doesn't have to be one through AOTA. It can be a journal club through your state association, through your colleagues at your institution, or just something that you can create yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much for those resources. I think our listeners will really appreciate them. Broca, we're almost done. I only have one more question for you. Before we get to that, though, I just want to remind our listeners to be on the lookout for the Journal Club Jumpstart name, still pending, and be sure to use that Journal Club Jumpstart to, to help 
address barriers that maybe are preventing you from applying evidence to practice in a really fun and meaningful way, uh, which would be through a journal club. Now to our our golden nugget segment is what I like to call it, um, where we kind of give you an open mic and ask you to share uh, one thing that you would like to share with the the OT world. Um, So Broca, if you could share one piece of knowledge or clinical recommendation with practitioners, what would it be? Wow, that's like a hard sell, the way you just phrased that. It's like one golden nugget. Uh, let's think. I think for me, it would be really the importance of just always having like this learning mindset, right, as an individual clinician. And I think that's something that if you have that learning mindset, regardless of the, the mechanisms you learn by, whether it's a journal club, whether it's more other types of formal continuing education, whether it's just every day in practice, you you treat your clients and then you see the, you, you envision what happens and then you learn from that and then you change the way you treat your next client or, or you continue the same thing if it's, you know, it feels like it's effective. But really trying not to get stuck in, in a rut. And I, I know that's really hard, especially with time because you just, you know, I think we're so busy. So you just treat people and treat people and treat people. But I think it's really important to, again, just always be looking to learn and always reflecting on what has happened and just enter that. They continue a cycle of like we call quality improvement for an institution, but even like quality improvement or a learning health system in relation to an individual clinician. And I think if you have that mindset, again, regardless of whether you participate in something like a journal club or not, uh, and I think a journal club can be a great mechanism of helping you really stay within that mindset I think we can really create excellent outcomes for our clients and also feel really rewarded as practitioners. You've really shared a number of nuggets, uh, knowledge nuggets uh, in this interview. I think that's a great one to end on. Thank you again so much for your time, Broca, and for this interview. I think it went really well. Thanks so much, Matt. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.